Welcome to episode 340 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. First, I feel I should apologize. I think I came in a little hot on the 340 there in the intro. Yeah, I mean, what I've noticed is there are certain numbers that don't lend themselves to our normal cadence, and it always throws me a little bit off when we run into one of those. Yeah, it's 340. I just got excited. We talk, I, There's no significance to this number, except, well, 40. Yeah. But, yeah, and three? <laughs> And okay, never mind. It's yeah. a really significant number, and that's why I got super excited. Yeah. So it's just gonna have to. It's like that. three, three times forty. So it's like a, the biblical number for judgment and trials. Three times over, uh, six, six, six. Neron Kaiser. Just I'll just throw all of the numerological stuff I can think of at this. There we go. Let the transcript sort it out. AI, try to figure this episode out. <laughs> Everything is here. Everything is here. Well, it's not not everything i mean we've really i think been enjoying these conversations where we're talking it's about true. devotion and duty recapitulation and redemption everything happening in these 10 words that god gives us the 10 commandments and how it of course it is a blueprint for life but it's totally changed and reinforced and reinvigorated made new but also the same as it was from before there was time itself because of what christ has done in us yeah and we've made our way through the first table and we're somewhat in the second table and we're talking about thou shall not kill or thou shall not murder that's the sixth commandment so before we get into all that kind of fun because People expect a lot of fun when we talk about the Sixth Commandment. Let's talk first about things that we are affirming with and denying against. And I'm going to flip us a little bit. Let's do the denials first. So what are you oh. denying against on this episode? So I'm, I don't, this is another one of those. I'm not sure what to call it. So I'm calling this, I'm denying philosophical self-delusions. So this is tied into, and I, I'm, I have to ca- like hedge this, or I'm going to have a thousand angry Baptists from Arizona pounding on my door. I am not saying that James White is delusional. Okay. I'm this is just a label for what I'm trying to explain, but it is tied up in this controversy that James White seems to be kind of the figurehead for, or like the tip of the spear on. There, there's a the the anti-Thomist, biblicist, whatever we call it, um, position that James White has been advocating for a couple of years now. The controversy's been going on for a couple of years. Uh, it doesn't seem to be slowing down or coming to any sort of resolution. When you peel back the issues in this controversy, what it really is, is a sense of self-inflation that people on that side of the conversation have, where they they miss the fact that all of the language that they're using and all of the concepts that they're trying to employ um, in, in explaining the Trinity from a biblical standard Almost all of these concepts are concepts that were developed by the church uh, outside of the Bible, outside of the specific biblical data, in attempt to explain the biblical data. But but because we are creatures and because we are in a context and a philosophical context, uh, we all exist within a philosophical context. Um, you can't help but explain the biblical data utilizing linguistic and philosophical tools. So when when you have someone uh, come to you who says something like, well, I just I just get my concepts from the Bible and you ask them um, the, the way that I've been approaching it recently is to ask them, well, where does your concept of person and where does your concept of nature come from? Like, where's the origin of that? What usually happens is they explain the doctrine of the Trinity using the exegetical proof texts and methods that they have learned, uh, and they do a fine job. But what they don't recognize they're doing is they're borrowing these philosophical concepts that the church has deployed throughout its history to explain this data. So they'll say something like, well, Jesus is fully God, and and the Father is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God, and that's because they share a common nature. Well, that, that second part of the phrase that they share a common nature, that's a philosophical concept that the church borrowed and adapted from Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy. So I'm, the reason I'm calling this philosophical self-delusion is because I think that this people who are in this movement really think that they are coming to the Bible without any philosophical 
baggage or toolkit or, or whatever you want to call it. And they just, they just aren't, and they don't know that they aren't. Um, so what, whether your philosophical framework that you're utilizing to explain the biblical data, no, I'm not saying to interpret the biblical data, to explain the biblical data, whether the philosophical framework that you're using is Thomism or Aristotelianism or the Nicene Creed or Neoplatonism or modernity, post-modernity, um, everybody comes with this philosophical background. James White and people who are on that side of it are tending to come with a post-enlightenment, post-modern um, sort of modernity, post-modernity mindset. And so they have a particular understanding of what the word person means and what the word nature means. And they bring that to the conversation. And, and the difference, I think, is it's not a matter of honesty or dishonesty. I'm not saying that they know they're doing this and they're lying about it. It's a matter of awareness and unawareness. The people on the classical theism side, what we're saying is there's this philosophical and theological history that we bring with us to the conversation, and we utilize those tools that the tradition has given us in order to explain and understand what the scripture is saying. The, the sort of non-classical theist, biblicist side is saying that, that that's not true. I just come to the Bible and I explain what the Bible says. So I, again, I, I, don't, I don't know there's much more to say or, or to go, but it's something to be aware of in these conversations is you have to understand what the, the sort of like foundational disagreement is. This theology proper stuff, this is like the symptom of the disagreement. It's a really bad symptom, but it's a symptom of the disagreement. The actual disagreement is this sort of methodological sort of argument that's going on below the surface. So that's what I'm denying today. People who think they have no philosophical background or philosophical tools that they bring to the conversation when they do. It's just, they do. It's true. Is this your introduction to your forthcoming book, Everybody's a Philosopher? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Everyone's a philosopher. It's just a matter of whether you're a good one or not. <laughs> the answer is you're probably not. Most people aren't. I'm, I'm not a very good philosopher, so I put myself in that category. Nor am I. It, it sounded like you're about to create this companion work to R.C. Sproul's Everyone's a Theologian, which is not false, right? So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I, I think it's fair for us to understand just the degree, that, like really the heaviness of bias that exists, both cognitive and emotional error in everything that we think about. This is a product of the fall. So, and the thing that makes this particularly pernicious is the fact that you can feel convicted that you're right on some things, but not know exactly the thing that you're right, right. about, so yeah. to speak. So it's particularly prevalent, I think, in philosophy. But you're right. We all have these backgrounds and these filters. We all have framing. We're all anchored to certain concepts, both by way of nature and nurture. Yeah. So it's just fair to, I think we need to come to a place where if we're going to get this deep, we're really going to go into those kind of topics, then it's fair for us to say, like, let me acknowledge or even try to process where I might have these yeah. biases. I think that's fair. So it's particularly problematic, like you said, if somebody's not willing to go to that place. And instead, just begins from this place of, well, I must be right because of my conviction on a particular matter, philosophically, instead of trying to acknowledge and sort out where you might have gaps or where you are impounding or importing some different concepts just because of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the easiest sort of example of this is the Trinity itself. So the early church had had the data in front of them, both from the experience of Jesus and the experience of the Holy Spirit. So we've, talk, we've talked about that before, that the, the New Testament is actually, the doctrine of the Trinity develops between the writing of the Old and the New Testament as a response by the church to the, the uh, you know, uh, the Christ event. I hate using that language because it's it's got so much baggage from like critical theory, but from this Christ event and then from Pentecost and the Holy Spirit and everything that that the Son and the Spirit do in a new, more visible way uh, in in the ministry that they the the missions. Um, the church has this data in front of them from that experience and then also from the the inspiration of the uh, scriptures and what the scripture says. And so they're faced with this idea that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods and, and there are three persons. And they have to they have to understand and explain this in a way that makes sense of the biblical data. And so they made use of the philosophical concepts that Plato and, and Neoplatonism gave them in saying that the way that we explain this is that there is one nature and there are three persons who are and bear that nature. That's not to say that there might not be some philosophical improvement in the future where we're better able to make use of and explain 
the way that things exist and therefore the way that the Bible talks about the existence of these three persons who are God, um, that, that may happen in the future. I don't think that after, you know, 15, 1600 years of reflecting on this and philosophical, I don't think it's going to happen, but it could. So it's, it's not that we're committed or should be committed to Platonism or Neoplatonism as the, as the rubric for this. But in the last 2000 years of the church reflecting on the data that we have in relation to the Trinity, this is the best language that we've been able to come up with. And the, the difference is not, um, the the most surefire way to let your biases really screw up your theology is to pretend you don't have any biases, to pretend you don't have any preconceived notions. The way that you attempt to, and you can never fully do this, but the way you attempt to correct for your theological biases is by coming into the conversation aware of them and then understanding where they affect you and what you can do about it. So I, I want to turn this into the whole episode and it easily could become, I feel like every time we say this, but it easily could become an entire episode and probably will at some point. Uh, but it it's just, it it's a big problem for people, especially people who do not understand the history of doctrinal development very well. Um, one of the guys I was talking to about this um, basically was trying to say like, yeah, well, we didn't have the terminology of person in nature before Thomas. Um, but there's no reason we should make use of him. We should be really careful. And I was like, what do you mean we didn't have this terminology before Thomas? Like we've had this since 180 with Tertullian. Like it's not, it's not like it took 1200 years for us to figure out that we need to use this language. We've been developing it the whole time. So that's my denial. I'm sticking with it. And there you go. The denial is sometimes the midwife of the episode. It's true. It, it happens, which is why my denial, ready for this, is super, super meta. And I'm just <laughs> denying, denying against long denials because often I'm the one that's bringing forward a really long triggered. denial. I feel targeted. That becomes, yeah, that wasn't necessarily a reflection of this past denial, which I think was was very good. It's just, uh, I was thinking about that same thing this week. It's like sometimes we start to talk, then we realize this could be its whole thing. Actually, yeah. this is about to be the whole thing. It yeah. is the midlife sentence of the episode. So at the risk of, somehow creating this denial inception where I'm denying against long denials and then creating at the same time a long <laughs> denial. Let's just move on there you go. to something that's a little bit more pleasant, a little bit more on the upside. What are you affirming with on this episode? So this is a super light, super fun, uh, short affirmation. Uh, I, so were you a Power Rangers fan when you were a kid? I don't know. I think that's like a little bit after my yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah, it, it probably you were probably just a little bit too old for P Power Rangers to be appealing. So I was a huge Power Rangers fan. So okay. Power Rangers came out in uh, I want to say like 1993. Yeah, because this is the 30 yeah. year anniversary. So Power Rangers, the first Power Rangers episode aired in the United States in 1993, and when it came on, it was just this like fun, fun, goofy, wholesome karate alien action show. Um, it was kind of in the same thought, like line of thinking as Power um, Ninja Turtles, where it was just this weird karate fighting show. Well, 30 years later now, uh, and the first iteration of Power Rangers was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It's like the most famous of all of the Power Rangers troops or teams or whatever. Right. They just aired a 30th anniversary special called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Once and Always. It's on Netflix. Uh, it is the same fun, campy, silly, um, for the most part, silly action karate fighting show. Um, but it's also got like the best kind of nostalgia for someone who really, really loved the original show. So one of one of the original cast members um, was tragically killed in a car accident. I want to say like 15 years ago. It's been quite a long time. Um, so she she was killed relatively young. Um, another one of the cast members has died recently, um, sort of a, a strange health concern. Um, he died after the filming of the show. So this show serves as a sort of like uh, memorial to the one who had died prior to the filming. And so there's a lot of like emotionality behind it. So if you were a Power Rangers fan uh, and you can get behind it, it's campy and silly and goofy in the way that a Power Rangers show is supposed to be campy and silly and goofy. It's like funny one liners, weird kind of funny scenarios, uh, strange sound effects, cheesy graphics. So check it out. It's on Netflix. It's about an hour long. So it's, it's a little bit longer than a, a regular episode of the show. It's called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Once and Always is the title. And I, I really enjoyed it. I had a really good time watching it. It was just goofy. And this is 
this is like an episode of the show. Like it is the show itself just redone or it's more. Oh no, it's a brand new episode using all of the original, the original characters that were available. So, so the original team was five, five teenagers with attitude is how they describe them in the show. Five teenagers with attitude. Um, two, two of the original uh, characters were back for this. Two of them didn't come back because of contract issues. And then two of them, or one of them has died, and then there was a sixth one that was added halfway through the first season. Um, and neither the two that died uh, obviously didn't come back and weren't in the show at all, even other than like pictures and flashbacks and stuff. Um, so this is a it's a a 30th anniversary special. As far as I can tell, it'll be considered canon in the Power Rangers canon, um, but it's not like an episode of the show. So the story the story is more or less self-contained. If you have an, a f- passing familiarity with the story of Power Rangers, um, you'll understand what's going on in the show. And it doesn't it doesn't seem like it leads into anything directly. So it's not like you it's not like a Doctor Who special where you have to watch this special to know what's going on in the next season. And most most adults probably won't enjoy watching the actual show. Um, but it was fun. It was fun. It was good action. Um, it's funny because like there's like a classic, the classic scene that happens in every episode is one of the power Rangers yells, it's morphin time. And then it flashes to this like cut scene of them yelling out the names of their like power dinosaurs. And then it flashes back and their power Rangers. And the reason that it was like that is because the, this show is actually very innovative. I could talk about this all day long. I love this kind of stuff. The show was very innovative in that it took a, it took clips from a Japanese show. I think it was called Super Sentai. Um, they took clips from a, a Japanese show for the fighting scenes, and then they created a story using American teenagers. So they 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 have two clips that they then merged together. So what you're seeing when the Power Rangers are fighting is these old reused clips from this Super Sentai show, but they've created a new story and put new voiceover to it. But because of that, you hardly ever see in the original series, you hardly ever see a transition from someone being not morphed into a power ranger to being morphed into a power ranger. They actually showed that in this episode a lot. It was like, they were really proud of the fact that they finally are showing it. So I thought that was really interesting and really, really clever. Um, some of the fight scenes when they're in these big, like giant robots uh, are a little bit more engaging. Although the computer generation was bad. Um, they're more engaging because that's, they're actually able to do stuff with it that they couldn't have done in the original Japanese show. So yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to like, gush all over this. If you liked Power Rangers, if that was something you were you were excited about when you were a kid, uh you'll you'll enjoy watching this. You may not ever watch another episode after this, but it was it was fun and very nostalgic in all the it hit all the best like nostalgic kinds of things, like the goofy character tropes that were present in the original. One of the characters, he does this thing called Hip Hop Keto. He's like the one black guy from the original show. And he did this like breakdance fighting style of martial arts. And there's a scene where there's a character that's a younger character and he's fighting. And she's like, are you breakdance fighting? And it, it's just funny and campy and, and, and enjoyable in all the best ways. It'll hit your nostalgia bone in the right spot. There's so much of that stuff that's happening right now, isn't there? I love these reprises. Yeah. Um, all these old shows or whether it's like full house and fuller house or apparently this who even knew. So what a time to be alive where you can yeah. see, cause it used to be, of course, like these things would be, they'd be produced and then they would just kind of go away or go into syndication. So it's really interesting that they're yeah. coming back in some way and they're drawing from those who had a connection to them in the beginning. And I think that's just kind of cool, right? That That's like, that is the perfect affirming with, isn't it? Like just, here's a fun thing go enjoy this fun thing. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun too. like, Augie's a little bit too young to enjoy this kind of stuff. He's, he's not old enough to watch, like sit down and watch an episode of power Rangers and know what's going on. But if you have kids that are the age, this, the power Rangers are still a show. Like they've been going on. It's a, a TV show that's been going on for 30 years now. Your kids could watch Power Rangers and then you could sit down and watch them with us and be like, this is where it all started. This is what I watched when I was a kid. For me, it's yeah. kind of like Pokemon. Like Pokemon is sort of the same thing. The The Pokemon games have been around for 20 years, 25 years now. Actually, I think it's 20. Um, so like you can sit down with your kid and get them the newest version of Pokemon and then show them like, yeah, this, this Pokemon, this was the first Pokemon I ever caught when I played the original Pokemon 
20 years ago. So that kind of stuff, it hits me a little bit differently now that I have a kid. Um, but that kind of nostalgia is just really, really fun. And th this show's clean. There's some swearing. Um, there's no sexual undertones or anything like that. That's common in a lot of our, our newer TV shows. Um, it just is good, clean, fun action fighting. Um, they're fighting monsters. So there's no, there's no like, um, gratuitous blood or violence or anything like that um it's just an enjoyable wholesome show that you can watch yeah that sounds absolutely fantastic how much would you say there is breakdance fighting though um what not was... not enough but not too much i wish there was more breakdance fighting <laughs> i've honestly never seen a single episode of power rangers and not for any particular reason it just has never crossed my path. So I do feel that now I'm going to have to just go check this out. If only I want to see, like, I want to get into the vibe. I, I, I just, I know that people have a great loyalty to this. Yeah. They have a strong emotional con connection and I know it's great fun. So I actually feel compelled after your affirmation to go check it out myself. Yeah. So what you need to do if you want to watch it is you need to go and watch the very first episode of the Power Rangers. So you understand the basic storyline. And then you can watch this. You literally would not need to watch any other episodes of the show in order to have enough knowledge of what's going on to pick up this show and watch it and understand. So, but if you don't watch that first one, it's just going to seem weird and random. Yeah, that's fair. I think maybe that's been my perception so far. I mean, it is weird and random. That's kind of the nature of the show. <laughs> but like, that's the fun. Right. That's the fun. But in order to know who are these characters, what, who is this bad guy? You should just watch the first episode. I think it's like 22 minutes long. It's a short after school style kids show. Fair enough. See? What a time to be alive. What a time. It's like every affirmation now these days. Yeah. It's just God is good to us that he's given us this time and this era and this epoch to be living on this earth. And we ought to praise him. So speaking of that, mine also now surprisingly somewhat has like a nostalgic twinge, at least for me. So I'm affirming with music that's coming out. And so in some ways, I'm a little bit ahead of this because I haven't heard the whole thing because you can't hear the whole thing. It's not quite out yet. But some people will know this band. There's a band named Disciple. It's a Christian rock band out of Knoxville, Tennessee. First formed in 1992. Wow. So it's very unusual, of course, to have anybody make a career over 20 years making music. But Disciple has done it. And they actually have a, a whole new album that's coming out. Three songs have been released on that so far. So you can go find them wherever you find your music. Here's what I'll say about this, the new songs. It's like amazing Disciple. Disciple is just an amazing rock band. If you enjoy good rock and you want to praise God in that rock explicitly, Disciple is or should be your jam. So just go look them up. They have 12 albums. Beyond this, I will say my only caveat is one of the songs on that, that we've released so far, and there's been three of them. One is called The Executioner. It's a little bit weird. So it's weird in its lyrics. There's some like kind of like, Catholic overtones that like, you know, when somebody's saying something Catholic and you realize you say, you want to say to them, I do not think you mean the thing that you <laughs> mean. It's yeah. kind of like that thing. They're, they're being clever with their representation of death and of sacrifice and of last rites. And they're invoking that language. So when I heard that, I was a little bit like, Ooh, come on guys. Like, but this is a band where their heart is like firmly in this place of loving the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to worship him in a medium of music that often is the opposite. So I just want to affirm them. And I think this new album is going to be fantastic. And the music is super fun. Apparently the album is going to be called Skeleton Psalms. And I think it's going to be released at the end of this month. That is March. I think like the 30th. So, or sorry, it's, I said it was supposed to be released March 30th, but I think it's more than these three songs. It's a little bit mysterious. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's out there. There's three songs out there. It's coming. I keep seeing dates that it's supposed to be released out, but it hasn't happened yet. But anybody who knows Disciple should know that they just make amazingly wholesome, catchy, lovely, like party thumping, encouraging, exciting music. It's really fun. And it's, it's after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's just like the easiest affirmation in the entire world because it just makes sense, loved ones. So go and check that out. Yeah, that, that's kind of the way things are these days. It's like it used to be that like um, because a release involved like physical CDs and, and contracts right. with stores, like they you would have a hard release date. And, and that was when the CD was going to ship, whether it was done or not. Um, nowadays, it's like, well, we can just push the button whenever we want and move it over to iTunes. And, and so it's not quite ready. We're just going to wait. So you never really know when something's going to come out. 
Um, like not to bring it back to Pokemon, although it seems like a lot of things in my life relate to Pokemon. They have a, they have a new, like, uh, like a new downloadable content patch that's supposed to be coming out for the game. The, the one that was released last year. And they're like, it'll be here sometime in the end of the year, sometime in 2023. Yeah, exactly. And, and what'll happen is like the Monday before it releases, they'll release a trailer and then it'll be like, or they do these things called like Nintendo direct or Pokemon presents. But they'll like reveal a new game that's coming out in the future. And they'll be like, oh, by the way, that downloadable content patch that you bought six months ago, it's available right now. And they just won't tell you until it's released. So it's a different world in terms of distribution now that it's a digital distribution of things. Yeah, you could just, like you said, you could drop it without much pretense or premeditation or change it all around because, you know, people have access to it right away. So yep. what does it really matter? There's no pre-over. You just make it happen. So I just did a quick, little quick research. It looks like April 28th, tentatively. As of this moment, you can timestamp it. Skeleton sounds will be coming out, but just go and listen to the entire back catalog. This is, I will say, in case people are curious because of my history, this is not necessarily screaming music. So if you're turned off by that, this is not that thing. So this is a little bit more, it's Southern rock. Oh, so I'm trying like to third day out. style. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know that you have a hate, hate relationship with third day. No, I well listen. I love their and apparently Max Powell's making his own music. I just came across that. I guess he's he's doing his own thing. It's it's a little bit heavier than that, but not in an aggressive way. Just like in a full way, in a way that's like, if, let's say you need to go do something, you want to pump yourself up, like in a way that Dwight Schrute would listen to this right before he was about to make a sales call. That kind of way. I can dig that. Yeah, only some people will get that reference, and I'm okay with that. That's all right. I'm fine. Yeah. Speaking of uh, references and. And I, I had planned somewhere in my mind a really great segue there, and it just totally got waylaid. So, speaking of references, let's turn to Exodus twenty. <laughs> I like it. So good, so good. And actually, I will turn there. And uh, the thing about this is, this is like the shortest verse, maybe that we've ever used as an opener. And that is, we're in Exodus twenty. We're going through these ten words, and again, they were words. That's the way that Jews understood them to be. Is that they were associated with the first word of the phrase, the first word of the statement that God was giving to his people as a commandment. And so we find ourselves in Exodus 20, chapter 20, verse is, well, just verse 13, technically. <laughs> you shall not murder. That's it. Now, we talked about how you and I talked about privately, how we've actually, over the course of our catalog, and this will be a fun exercise, like an Easter egg exercise for everybody. We've actually talked about this extensively in lots of different ways. Yeah. But I, what I value in our conversation, that I think we've been doing recently is really trying to understand, you know, it's cliche to say, what is the, the heart behind the precept here? What is the principle behind everything that God is saying? What do we see both as a mirror and as a window into the character of God and into ourselves. But I think a good place to start on this one, being that we really are after what is happening on the inside as a reflection, what was what occurs on the outside, is it occurred to me as we we're talking about this, is this idea of anger. Yeah. You know, I, I think here is one place in which Luther is particularly helpful. And in his own catechism, he goes to great length when he's talking about the sixth commandment which I think for him technically is the seventh commandment, but Lutherans, who's counting? Where he talks about this idea that where murder is forbidden, every other cause also is forbidden where murder may originate. In other words, like anything that would lead us naturally to want to take somebody's life, to take them out of the equation and remove them from our lives by way of inconvenience to ourselves, if the law in fact allowed it, that is if there was no prohibition, that is to remove somebody else's will, somebody else's influence from our lives. Whatever is the genesis of that, that actually is disobeying this command. And I think that this is an easy one for maybe contemporary Christians, especially in most parts of the world, to say, well, this is, I read this one, I get to verse 12, and I'm just like, listen, not applicable, never going to happen. Yeah. I'm not tempted by that. There's no way I even have the gravitas to go and take somebody's physical life. And of course, we pair this with the Sermon on the Mount and most of Jesus' ministry. We do get some direct connection. It's more than derivative. But but even with that said, I think we fail to understand what Luther kind of points out to us, which is where there is a root there, that root actually is a forbidden thing. Murder itself is merely a manifestation of yeah. that root in its most extreme degree but we must eradicate the root. And even 
without the Sermon on the Mount, that's what God was after when he gave us this commandment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a good way to think about this, and I'm actually surprised this hasn't come up before in this series, every sin that you commit outwardly starts as an inclination of the heart and a thought exactly. in your mind. There's, there's very few instances where, where an action is truly, truly spontaneous, where there's no prior contemplation of, of the action. Um, and even in instances where it seems truly spontaneous, the likely situation is that there is a, a very, a very quick instantaneous contemplation that happens in your mind before the action is, is, um, engaged in. And it certainly is the case that an action that is engaged in is worse than an action that is only contemplated. But where we need to make the connection, and this is across the board with all of these commandments, any sin whatsoever, the contemplation itself is the origin of the sin. Right. So if you think about killing someone, or or as Christ reminds us, if you even if you're even angry with a person without without just cause, then you have already begun down a pathway that in this particular instance, we almost always stop, right? This is one of those, um, at least in its sort of like uh, absolute form of what the commandment is talking about here, um, the explicit the explicit prohibition of taking a life unjustly is what we're talking about here. Um, almost none of us will ever actually engage in this sin in the way it's specifically prohibited here. So you're right. A lot of times we look at this and we're like, ah, I can never do that. Like that's, I just, I, I don't even never have the opportunity to do that. And I'm never going to do right. that. But the fact is that on a, probably a daily basis, most of us start that path. We're just fortunate enough that the Holy Spirit restrains us from, right. from progressing down that path further than we do. So I think, I think you're right. We have to talk about this in a sort of root and tree sense that even though the tree doesn't, doesn't sort of blossom and grow in this particular sin for us, the root of this sin is still there. So I want to read something from the, uh, this is the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's question 135. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? And it says the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices, which tend to the unjust taking away of life of any by a just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be re uh, reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and su uh, succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. And the, the reason I read that whole thing is when you read it, the vast majority of those have to do with the inner life of the mind and the heart. It's not just saying like, well, make sure you don't own any weapons that you might hurt somebody with. It's not saying like, don't, don't, uh, don't strike out in your anger. It's saying, and this is that maybe it's because I've been reading so much stoic philosophy lately. It's saying like, control your passions, control your thought life, control your inner self so that not only do the outward actions not take place, but the inner actions, which lead to the outward actions, they also are under control as best as we can. Obviously, none of us control these things perfectly, but there are times where we're going to have to take a step back from a scenario and say, man, I had some really murderous thoughts about that person and I need to get that under control. And I think that's what we need to focus on as kind of 21st century Christians where this just isn't like, at least in the Western world, most of us are not in situations on a, on a regular or, or ever basis that we have to really think about whether we're going to physically murder someone. That's just not the scenarios that we're right. in. So the the mind of the the life of the mind and the life of the soul, this is where the battleground is for us on this. Yeah, it's one of those things where you don't need to grow up in the church to know that murder is a wicked offense. I mean, murder is, is treated almost nearly universally as a heinous crime. Yeah. And to your point, and God giving this in its explicit sense, there's a pragmatic nature to it. If you think about what is the probability that any given person is is going to actually take the life of somebody else? That would that's a small proportion. Yeah. And so it, it would be strange for God to say, well, well, listen, I'm just trying to get ahead of like a small percentage here. He's after all of us. And there is 
a real sense in which from the beginning, because I think some of this gets colored and not inappropriately so, but it, it kind of gets colored and just sucked into the Sermon on the Mount. And I think even without that, you can get the sense here that God is saying anger is murder. That it, to your point, it's just that it's possible in God's goodness that he constrains or restrains the natural outward effect of that anger. But absent God, even in his kind of like prevenient grace, so to speak, in the sense, like just common grace, not prevenient, but a common, that that would be the natural outworking of this kind of anger, even like a small kernel of anger. What anger is saying is, I want to remove this person's existence. I At least they're inconvenient to me. They come against me. They cut against me. I do not want them present in my experience. And so by virtue of that fact, anger has as its natural child, murder. And so we can go to the Sermon on the Mount to see Jesus really expound on that and promulgate that very explicitly and tightly couple it with this commandment. But I don't think we need to go there per se, because what God has given us from the beginning is he's interceding in the kind way that a good father always intercedes. Yeah. To say the best way to avoid this problem is to resolve all quarrels, all conflicts, to stay of the heart. And I think based on what you're saying, this is where we see again, this amazingly high standard of the law, which requires that in some ways we do something which we're not even capable of. This massive restraining of the proclivity, the visceral response to be angry with somebody and over like, maybe you have never had this experience, but I can be angry over super dumb things for yeah. somebody else. Yeah. Like in an unmeasured way, like not in a way where there's a temper, but in a way that it's disproportionate to the thing itself. You know, like, and even if it's like an inanimate object, like I can go to get into my motor vehicle and hit my elbow or funny bone <laughs> on like the frame of the car. Yeah. And, one, and if I, if I had the ability to pick up the car and throw it into the woods, that's what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, and that's a matter of the inner heart reflecting really my true desire in that moment. Yeah. That reminds me of, there's this scene, you'll recognize the scene because you're a fan of the office. There's a scene. So that the, the if you happen to be like the one person who has never seen The Office, the premise of the show, The Office, is that there's like this documentary being filmed about these these totally average run of the mill normal office workers in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And for the most part throughout the series, you don't know you like you don't the the fact that there's a camera crew around and, and that these people are being recorded is just not really acknowledged directly. But there's a scene where one of the main characters, his name is Jim. And he's doing like an interview, like a like a, a testimonial that you see on these kind of documentaries where he's sitting, he's talking to the camera and he bites his lip and he, he gets all frustrated and he goes, OK, OK, let me let me restart that. And he starts what he was saying again and he bites his lip again and he gets so angry. He stands up, he like rips the microphone off, he storms out and he grabs his bag and he goes home. And like we all laugh at that and we think that's really funny, but like that is a totally irrational response to a very tiny injury that yes, is very frustrating. And this is where, this is where it gets into it, right? That's a funny show. Ha ha ha. But like, if you just stormed out of your office without telling anybody because you bit your lip, like you could probably lose your job, which now is tending towards the unjust taking away of life by not being able to provide for your family. So these little things that balloon out into outward behavior, even if it's not a physically aggressive act towards someone else, when you react in anger, and you act in anger, that's a violation of this commandment. And almost across the board, if you take those actions that happen out of unreasonable anger and extrapolate them to what the likely consequences could be, but for the grace of God, right. it ends in death. Like it ends in people not living at the very least, not having the quality of life that they should, but in, in a lot of cases, actually not living itself. And this is, this is what I think is really interesting about this commandment too, right? So the Westminster Larger Catechism is not the Bible, but it's an accurate understanding and explanation of the Bible. And one of the things that this commandment calls out is that part of us fulfilling this commandment is also not enticing others to, to break this commandment. So it right. says here um, that uh, we're obligated to be charitable, we to have charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable and mild and courteous speech and behavior. The reason that that's in there is because we shouldn't be we shouldn't be taking everyone else off so that they want to kill us. Right? So this is this is like a comprehensive commandment 
that is in a certain sense, the first four commandments are all oriented and sort of explanatory of the first commandment, right? Worship God, God alone, God is the only God. So here are the, th the next three things that serve that of how you do that. You don't, you don't make idols. You don't worship in ways that he hasn't prescribed. That's the second commandment. You don't, um, you don't use his name flippantly or frivolously. That's the third commandment. And you, you set aside the time that he is expected of you and, and you don't, waste that time. You don't misuse that time. That's the fourth commandment. In very real sense, the first or the the uh, fifth commandment that we talked about last week is about our relationships with everyone, right? So we didn't go into the commandment in the catechism, but it breaks it down into um, duties owed to superiors. That's the authorities in our lives, our parents. Duties owed to inferiors. So the, the people that we are an authority over, our children, if we're parents, and then the duties to equals. And I think in the context, you could say like you're the, the parent of your children, your, your co-parent would be an equal. That extends to, that's everybody, right? Because now authorities are standing for people in authority over us outside of the family. Subordinates are people subordinate to us outside of the family and support uh, equals are everybody. Well, this now, this obligation is is an expansion of that. These are the people that you have obligations to everyone. Here's one of the obligations you have to them. Don't kill them and don't give them a reason to kill you. Don't be a jerk and don't, don't cause other people to be a jerk. Don't be unreasonably angry and don't give other people a reason to be angry with you. And this, this is, this is the beauty of the 10 words, right? When you understand that these are really, they're not 10 discrete commandments. They really are 10 principles that govern all of our moral life. You start to see things that are said in the rest of the Bible, and you start to be able to associate them with this. So the, the easy example for the um, fifth commandment, where it says, um, you know, honor your father and your mother. Well, there's a command. Uh, Paul says that parent, fathers are not to exacerbate their children. That is an, an application of the fourth or the fifth commandment by Paul to how parents are supposed to act towards their children. Well, when Paul says, as far as it depends on me, I live at peace with all men. I become all things to all people. That's an application of this commandment and the way that the Westminster divines are reflecting on it, that Paul sees and understands that he has a moral obligation to, as far as it depends on him, as far as he can manage and can, can, uh, can cause it, he has an obligation not to cause anger and, and murderous thoughts in other people. We may not always be able to prevent it. Sometimes doing the right thing and saying the right thing is going to tick people off. But as far as it, as far as it concerns us, which means we need to think about the way we say things, we need to think about the timing of when we say things and who we say them to, all of that is built into this commandment. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think it, it just becomes so plain and obvious as we talk about it that for the natural man, this is an impossible standard. In fact, that's, of course, what Jesus is at when he says, your righteousness must exceed those of the scribes and the Pharisees who were concerned principally with the, the kind of like narrow, myopic, face-level interpretation of this, which was just don't shed blood. And for, so that way, yeah. from the beginning, God is saying, listen, it's not enough to not murder someone. We have to eradicate hatred in our hearts. Murder is not merely an action without any reference to the character of the murderer. Something more fundamental is at stake here. And so the sinful anger, the wrath that lurked behind the deed itself is blameworthy and will be subject to judgment. And we find that like almost repeat throughout the scriptures. Of course, yeah. it's in Matthew 5 when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. But even John himself in like 1 John writes, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a crazy statement, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, like that idea, the identity of the brother is ubiquitous. And of course, starts with like the ethnic Jew, but it expands way beyond that to say it's basically anybody. It's it's your neighbor. It's anyone with whom you have contact with or anybody with whom you can imagine. And you know that the murderer has no eternal life abiding in him. So the stakes are really high on this. And it's just easy to kind of slip it away as, well, if I've not committed this physical act, if I've really not taken somebody's physical life, then somehow this is really for those who would be tempted to act in a very indiscreet and extreme way. But I think we, as you're articulating it, really need to feel the weight of this because when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus is really expounding on this particular word, 
He's saying you're not safe from punishment just because you've not shed blood. Yeah. If, if you've harbored anger or contempt or malice towards somebody else, you are guilty. It's just the standard. The yeah. standard is impossibly high, absent God's Holy Spirit manifesting in your life. And this is again where we see like the 10 words, not merely as some kind of required conformity for the sake of meritorious living and approval, but it is abundant life when it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this, again, the indicative and the imperative, we find them not just in the Pauline texts, but here I think in the 10 words as well. So if you've ever wished someone harm and who hasn't, right? Or even worse, if you wish they were dead, or if you've ever rejoiced over someone's misfortune, like schadenfreude, like if you've ever put someone down in your heart, all of that is murder. Like you have known murder because that is, I, I think what God is after here is like whether or not you've acted on it, the fact is you wanted it yeah. like you and I wanted it in that moment. And that is the standard that he gives to us. And of course, like if you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, remove that, mitigate it, attenuate it, or get rid of it altogether, then we do find that we live in peace in a way that's reminiscent of like the garden. Yeah. Now, of course, like we're not going to get there in this side of heaven. However, what God is after is the reflection of his character, which is manifest in the creation in the garden. And so he gives us the sense that you should not murder. And any kind of anger is itself a reflection of murder. And here's the thing that's scary about this. Uh, this last thing I'll say before I take a breath is that, you know, there there are no degrees here. I mean, yeah. I mean, we could argue about degrees, of course, and we think about degrees in terms of our legal context and the land in which we live. However, God is basically saying he's equating any kind of hatred, no matter how small, to the fullest extent of that expression of anger and hatred, which would be literally removing somebody's physical life. Yeah. So that is a crazy standard. I say crazy in the sense that it cannot be achieved apart from Christ. Yeah. And, and this is the, you know, this is like the underlying principle for, um, for all of these statements. And maybe we don't, Maybe we don't say this enough in this series, so I'm just gonna gonna say it. The say it. the purpose of us talking about these uh, these laws is both to encourage the believer to holiness, right? That's that's one of the the uses of the law. But if if you are if you're somehow I don't know that there's a big audience of unbelievers listening to our show. I would doubt that that's the case. But if you if you're listening to this and there's a sense of despair that if how can I ever be right with God if if this is the standard that's exactly what the law is supposed to do that's what it is intended sure. to do and so for the for the non-christian this despair this this unachievable goal serves to drive us to Jesus Christ so this is this is what amazes me is and this is maybe some encouragement for Christians because I think sometimes there are instances where the Christian feels like um, no matter what I do, the world is going to be out to get me. And that's true. Like that, the sad part is that's true, but that's because of who Jesus is. So think about a person who never unreasonably caused anger in someone else. Because if what the if what the divines are saying here is accurate as far as an implication of this this command, and I think it is, then unreasonably causing anger, unnecessarily causing anger in someone else by your lack of control of your own speech and your own conduct, that is a sin, right? So we're not necessarily accountable for their emotional state itself, but the fact that we have caused that emotional state is our, our responsibility. That their being angry is not my sin, but me causing them to be angry when there was no cause for it, where there was no just cause for it, that is my sin. Jesus never did that. So all of the times that the Pharisees were enraged to the point of wanting to kill him, all of the times that um, we can sort of theorize that his brothers and sisters who are sinful, sinful uh, children were angry at Jesus and jealous of Jesus, just the normal, what we would say is normal sibling rivalry kind of stuff. None of that originated in Jesus's misconduct. And so where this becomes a encouragement for Christians is that we can never achieve it, but Christ did. And although we may do our best not to cause anger in others, there are times they're going to be angry with us for our faith, right. even though we have not we have not caused that in an unjust fashion because people were angry with Jesus and he didn't cause it in an unjust fashion. So we have this great high priest. We have this great example, this trailblazer who leads the way. 
This law drives us to him and all we have to do is trust him. That's all we have to do. And, and the other benefit of this, the other encouraging thing that I want to share with people is throughout this series, we're going to say, I think we've said it every time and we're going to continue to say it every time. You can't do this. Like you can't accomplish this. You can't drive the hatred from your heart. You're always going to have this until God glorifies us in, in the new kingdom or until we die and we're, we're, our sanctification is complete. But all of that said, Christ is still enough for us. His, his sacrifice still covers this sin. Even though it's, it's deep and embedded in us, he's still renewing us in the whole man after the image of God. That's what sanctification is. So yes, we're going to have times that we fall backwards, that we, we may have our anger under control for a, an extended period of time and we feel like we're doing great and then just the wrong guy cuts us off in traffic when we're running late to work. And then it all feels like it spirals back out of control. That's going to happen. You don't have to doubt your salvation when you get ticked off at someone in traffic because they they cut you off or because you missed a turn. You don't have to doubt your salvation. It's an opportunity for us to go back to God, to go back to Jesus and say, I'm not there yet. And I, I still need you. And I still want you. And I still desire to be more like you. So I don't know that I would necessarily directly apply this passage to this because it's not exactly a trial when this happens. It's it's something else. But the the wisdom of James, I think, actually applies here in an indirect way. Count it all joy, my friends, when you face trial of every kind, because that trial, this is a paraphrase now, that trial brings about steadfastness, which leads to perfection. Well, count it all joy when you get cut off in traffic, because even though you're going to fail, you're going to get unreasonably angry at the person who cut you off. That is an opportunity for you to come back to Jesus and for him to further sanctify you by the working of his spirit. And that leads to steadfastness and that leads to perfection. So, so it's, it's an encouragement. The law is not going to give us the power to obey it, but it is going to drive us to the one who does transform us and give us the power to obey it. And that's something I think a lot of people miss. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, there's this sense where we're always learning. It's just a classroom from which we never graduate. This idea that, Christ, of course, in his sacrifice was perfect and it was justified, that he entrusted himself to be justified before the Father, and he in fact was. And that justification comes both from the sacrifice itself, but also everything leading up to that, which is perfect obedience to these 10 words, this being one of them. So what we have in this is, in some ways, ought to drive us to this dexology and realization that Jesus was in fact perfect. That, of course, for him to be justified, to be raised from the dead means that all the 10 words, and this one in particular, he obeyed with perfection, which means that his intent was always in every way pure. And so we rely on him both to have achieved that on our behalf, and then in this temporal space to bring it to pass. That is to, we rely on him to, by his power, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, turn our hearts away from this kind of thing. I sometimes feel like maybe it's just me in my own life that I do not appropriately appreciate the really sharp edge of these 10 words that we kind of look at them and say like, yes, I understand I'm not perfect, but Jesus covers all things. That of course is true. And there's still a sense in which we should ought to appreciate the holy dread of being absent Christ. Yeah. That this test is for everybody and that everybody has to bear the weight of this test and must perform in some way. We either have the opportunity to say Christ has done all for me. Everything is accomplished and done and final, or we have to say, count it to my account and take a look at what I performed, which is a fool's errand. Yeah. And so many have heard me say this before, and I'm just going to go back here because I can. It's our conversation. And that is every time I think of the law, like the law writ large, the 10 words in particular, I just think of Pilgrim's Progress and this amazing scene, which is <laughs> far, yeah, my most favorite. I'm just going to read a quick segment from this. So Christian, who is the main pilgrim here, he's joined by his friend Faithful. They are sending a hill, and this is Faithful's recounting of himself getting pummeled by Moses. You don't know that at the time, but but here's the actual words that um, John Bunyan penned about this instance. Quote, so as soon as the man overtook me, that is Moses, it was but a word and a blow for down he knocked me and he laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him wherefore he served me so. He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and he beat me down backwards. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried him mercy, but he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by 
and bid him forbear, end quote. And that one who comes by is Christ himself. I love this because there's almost a humor in this for me. There's this kind of thrice repetition of being beat up and then literally being like knocked unconscious, coming to and saying like, what is going on? And then Moses is like, I, what was that you said? I will hit you again. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's this idea of like, he says like, why did you do this for me? And he's like, because you're just like your forefather, Adam the first. Yeah. And then beats him again. And then he wakes up again and says like, would you just have mercy on me? And Moses says, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. I cannot have mercy on you. The law does have no mercy. Apart from Christ, it's Christ has achieved all this in our behalf. So this to me is like the perfect encapsulation of all the things we've been talking about, but especially here, because it's not just, you'll notice in this passage, outward conformity. He's getting beat up because he's like, I know that your heart, your secret inclination is just like Adam's. It's the secret that you're holding and I can see through that. And so I'm going to hit you upside the head until you are knocked out. And then when you come to again and say and beg for mercy, I'm going to tell you no such mercy exists apart from Christ. So I love that even in this instance, we have Christ literally coming through and rescuing, bidding the forbearance. And it's a forbearance that's been earned. It's not cheap. It's earned forbearance. And so we can stand in the shadow of Christ. And we can stand knowing that he has exchanged for us, of course, ashes for beauty and all this mourning for rejoicing, but it's because he has made that great exchange, but it's at the heart level. And I know like that's common. I'm sure it's like stitch on people's pillows, it's cross stitch and you find it in, in cards, but it is the truth that we're, what we're really after here is the heart. And apparently at least as John Bunyan understood it, Moses sees through that nonsense. And of course God does himself as well. And so it's just a blessing, like you said, to know that our piety is not entirely based upon what we do, And what I mean by that is I think we've always encouraged in our conversations the sense that we ought to always be seeking after this increasing level of surrender to God, that he would in fact transform us, knowing at the same time that we have to work out our salvation, but it's God who works in us to work that out, even as we ourselves desire it. And where's that desire come from? God himself. And so we're always just coming before him saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a murderer because I'm, I'm an angry person. And I know that I've transgressed your law. And so all I can seek after is that father who, as I try to run back and I want to say, whatever you'll have me do, whatever service or penance, I will do it because it is the least thing that I can do. It is more than fair. And what God says is, come my child, like, let me get you a robe and let me get a ring and let's get a a giant meal buffet together for you because I love you. And because I have taken all this on myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Well, we have lots more law coming up in the next several episodes. So I don't think we need to, we, we'll come back to this, I'm sure. I'm sure this is not the first time that the Mosaic Beatdown will, uh, will come. That, that sounds like a really good name for a band. The Mosaic, yeah. like a really good, like hardcore metal band. And instead of doing like uh, airy, like airy, like melodic songs that are like the psalms it's just like really hardcore metal covers of like leviticus <laughs> like we could have a song that's called like uh he is bald he is clean that would be a good song i he think for <laughs> for the band mosaic beatdown listen that's got to be the album name that's that yeah that's epic he is bald he is clean that's one of my favorite verses i don't know the i don't know the reference off the top of my head but it's in that section in leviticus where it's like the the priest has to go in and test the wall for leprosy and like if if the wall grows the leprosy back then you have to burn the whole house down and there's a scene where it's like if a man is bald on his forehead but there's no yellow spots he is bald he is clean and i was like that's an encouraging passage for a guy like me uh, yeah, listen, I you make it look good. I I like that as well. When you said that, I thought of Moses as, and, and this is super strange, so everybody can just stop the podcast now if they want to, unless you want to hear something weird. I was envisioning him as this strange DJ where he was like working the turntables and somebody would like yell out from the rave like, Moses, drop that beat. And then he just comes down and beats them he up. He drops the beat down. And they're like, that's not what I said. He's like, I don't care what you said. <laughs> He's like, I know not. Not to show mercy. <laughs> I, or like maybe a good podcast called the Mosaic Beatdown, where it's all law and no gospel. People just it it's, people just weep uncontrollably for the entire podcast. Oh yeah, I don't I don't know why you're clapping. Yeah, it's one of those things where 
oh, I know we always bring this up, but that is like the beauty of the balance. Not balance in this weird like yin yang way or like force right. dark and light. This sense that God, in order, of course, for us to bring us into this abundant life, we have to know the cost of that life itself, which is best expressed through the law. And then here's the wild thing is like most every, I, I'm actually, maybe I'll put this to you. I would say like every other worldview creates some kind of balance so that one thing is jettisoned at the sake of the other. That is like the happy ending comes at the like complete redemption of whatever the bad thing was. And that's not to say that that doesn't happen in the Christian worldview. What it is to say here is that when we see the law, it it never gets made null and void. It gets, this is like a horrible word, almost like reappropriated. It gets transformed in such a way that now it is this lovely duty of devotion instead of duty of meritorious living, meritorious living under which nobody could stand up, which we're crushed. Now, actually, we stand up, but it's instead of it being on our shoulders, it's underneath our feet. Yeah. And that's like, that's amazing and unique to Christianity because most would say that every kind of law is an expression of oppression. And instead here, this law actually are the guidelines and the guide rails, which lead to abundant life. But we will always deviate from the rail unless it is Christ who is the engineer. This is getting weird again. Like, you know what I'm saying? It, but the fact that the law moves from our shoulders to underneath our feet because Christ has put it there under subjection. So everything is subservient to our salvation, even the law itself yeah. is like an amazing miracle. I, I just think I really underappreciate and undervalue that miracle. Yeah. Well, we've got, uh, we've got five more, six more, four more episodes, however many more episodes of the 10 commandments uh, coming up. So we'll get back into this stuff in the coming weeks uh, before we go. We're trying to do this new thing where we are cognizant of ways people are helping the, the brotherhood out, and we're trying to call those things out. So last week, we welcomed a new uh, Patreon supporter. Uh, so again, thank you to Brother Pete, who joined on the team uh, a little bit ago. We also got a new review on iTunes. So Brother Jimmy, who is from my own my own backyard of New Hampshire somewhere, uh, he said on iTunes, love the show. Always enjoy the conversation. So Thank you, Jimmy. We also always enjoy the conversation and we appreciate you. So we would love it if people would take a few minutes to go to iTunes, uh, leave a review and uh, some feedback. Uh, We love five-star reviews, but if you want to give us a four-star review or a three-star review or even a two or a one-star review, I don't think you can do zero stars on iTunes. Uh, but leave us some feedback. If if you if we don't deserve a five star review, we want right. to hear about it. Uh, but we right. want you to tell us what we can what we can do better. Um, so check it out. You can also leave um, reviews on individual episodes on Spotify. So I, I'm not going to ask you to do that because I probably will never ever check that because I don't use Spotify. But if you are so inclined and want to do that, I'm sure there's a reason to. I'm sure it does something to the algorithm. Um, but we really, we really do want to hear from people about what it is that, that they like on the show, what it is that they are benefiting from, um, ideas of future series. It's hard to even say it, but we're kind of like wrapping up this long series that we've been doing in systematic theology. Um, I think I'm not even sure hundred percent what's, what comes after this 10 commandments section. Um, so we're, we're looking for ideas for what the next series or set of episodes is going to be. So you can also, uh, you can also email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com and share your thoughts there or even better than either of those things. You can jump into our telegram chat, which you can join by going to t.me slash reform brotherhood and uh, share your ideas there. I mean, you can message me directly. You can share it with the group. Uh, that's probably the most direct way that you can get a hold of me. Jesse is in there sometimes, although not not super frequently. Um, but it's a great place for us just to connect and chat about what's going on in theology and, and share ideas about the show, prayer requests, all that fun stuff. I appreciate the way you catch that because I think we've been outspoken about the fact that salvation is by grace through faith, lest no one boast. However, Reviews are by works. It's true. So we understand. Just give us whatever it is that you think is a fair review. But that we do use that as somewhat of a barometer of, are we making sure that we're bringing people in that we're making this? It is a form of kind of infotainment in a way. We recognize that. But it, the whole point of this is to edify the brothers and sisters and to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to do that thing. So if you're if you're down with that, if you would say, you know what? That is my jam. Then as Tony said, you can join the Telegram chat. You can hang out and join patreon.com and support the podcast that way. 
or or you can just email us and let us know. I would love to hear from people that are listening on Spotify. I actually didn't even know until the second that you said that. <laughs> that we <were> on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure we are. I mean, our our podcast service pushes us pushes us to all these different platforms. So, yeah, we there's one that's like there's one platform that is like a very specific African platform that only operates in like two or three countries in Africa. We're on that oh, platform. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. I don't know if we have any listeners on there. I could probably check, but yeah, that's, that's amazing. Here's what I'd like to do, and not in a way that's weird, like numbers style, like numbers, the book of the Bible. But it would be great to do our firm brotherhood census. Would it not? Like yeah. just to know, just to get a sense, like where all the loved ones are hanging out. So I don't know how we do that. Somebody needs to help us with that. Somebody who's got the wherewithal and the brilliance there to make that happen. It would be amazing. Maybe we can just like create a survey on the website, but that, that seems like we, we just need somebody to help us out with that. But I, I would love to take a reformed brotherhood census. Nice. I mean, I can tell you that we had... 24,000 downloads in a period. I don't know what the period of time was a month, maybe 24,000 downloads in the United States, 780 in Canada, 609 in Australia. So not surprisingly, the English speaking countries are our main, our main areas, but we've got people in the Philippines, Zimbabwe, uh, India. We've got the United Arab Emirates. So that's amazing. Amazing. Uh, we have apparently recorded zero listeners in Thailand. I don't know why they even put that on the on the the report here. This is just the last month, though. We got some listeners in Turkey, Kyrgyzstan. So yeah, we've got listeners all over the place. I would love to have a Reform Brotherhood census and then like present it in the style of Moses. That was like these are the Reform Brotherhood <laughs> listeners that are old enough to wield the sword, <laughs> not counting the women and children. Uh, that's that's amazing well wherever you're listening however you're listening we're grateful join us let us know that you're out there and come be a part share your voice and until you do that we'll just keep doing this thing and that means for us we're going to honor everyone love the brotherhood what if I-